This is a podcast from Arts Council England and BBC Academy. Building digital capacity for the arts. Hello, welcome to our series of podcasts taken from events being held up and down the country where we're looking at how the arts sector can effectively create and distribute high-quality arts content for its audiences. I'm Bill Thompson, Head of Partnership Development at the BBC Archive, and in this session we're looking at the opportunities and challenges facing cultural organisations when it comes to producing audiovisual content and getting it out there. I'm talking to you from the Tyneside Cinema in Newcastle, one of the oldest new cinemas in the country. During this podcast, we'll be trying to bring you a flavour of the day's proceedings by sharing some of the best bits, including presentations, case studies and top tips from experts in the field. Don't forget to share and bookmark these podcasts. And video and audio from all the seminars and masterclasses is available at artscouncil.org.uk slash digitalcapacity. That's artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. I'm very pleased now to welcome Andrew Kaspari, who glories in the title of Head and Speech Radio and Classical Music, Comma Interactive, BBC. And now he's here to talk to us about a history of the world in 100 objects, the groundbreaking uh, project collaboration between the BBC and the British Museum. Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, what I thought I would try to do is talk about history of the world and 100 objects, but try and set it in the context of how that might work in the digital space as we see it um, and what lessons we could learn for arts organisations going forward. And none of what we're talking about this afternoon in terms of the BBC or in terms of many of your organisations gets us away from to inform, educate and entertain. The fact you have different technologies, the fact that you have different places to put your programmes or your things doesn't change the purpose. And the point about entertain is important. Some people would try to devalue the word entertainment because, you know, we're publicly funded, public service and all the rest of it. Just remember that when you go out and survey the Radio 4 audience and you say, why do you listen to Radio 4? The thing they put on top of the list is entertain. The good news is that for 10 million people a week listening to Melbourne Bragg talking about string theory at 9 o'clock on a Thursday morning constitutes entertainment. Do not limit your view as to what entertainment might be. The other thing that I think we should all bear in mind, each of us, when we talk about our digital proposition, we get very, very excited about our site, about our URL. You know, the BBC site is huge. Actually, it's very small, really, in terms of the rest of the internet. So we're all tiny. So the crucial lesson from history of the world and from what we're doing with all these is where else do you put it? So there is Aung San Suu Kyi's Wreath Lecture uh, on iTunes, and you find it next to Ibiza, or made in Chelsea, or under a television program about coast. The thing is that taking that material and putting it in places where people might be most likely to consume it is in some ways even more important than what you do in your own space. Whilst remembering that the material you're creating, whatever space you're creating it in, you're still creating it with your audience in mind. And remember, they're probably not going to find it just by going to your URL. The permanence, the ability to make that material that people wanted, those programs, portable, 
And we thought at the beginning people would get the podcast and then they'd get a bit bored. And actually what they did was they kept collecting more and more and doubtless filling themselves with what I call podcast guilt. I've got 85 on my iPod and I've only heard 35 of them. But what's good is that people are still downloading them now. So permanence and portability of the content. Um, now I'm going to try technologically to find a video just to give you a bit more of a sense of what History of the World was about. Because it was a lot more... Uh, once we'd got the original idea than just 100 programs about 100 objects. Over 500 other museums are now partners in a history of the world, adding hundreds of objects to the website and playing host to thousands of people who want to share their objects and their stories. BBC teams have joined forces with these museums running events across Britain. On TV, on radio, online and on the road. A History of the World has been a journey of discovery, helping us learn about people, places and things, and we've learned that sometimes it's the most ordinary objects that can tell the most extraordinary stories. So very quickly, I want to give you five things that I bet on going forward. I think there are five. The first one is the content, the C word, which we prefer not to use, really. Um, people go to supermarkets to buy bananas, not to look at nice shelves. What is there that people want? What have I got that people might want to consume, that people might want to watch, people might want to listen to, people might want to read? The second one is navigation and aggregation, which is one of Bill's um, favourite subjects. This is what I call content glut. How you find your way through it, how you find that stuff, how do we make our programmes, our material, findable by anybody and everybody and aggregatable by them? Where will they draw them together? What spaces will they draw them together in? And working out what that is, working out simply how you're going to label your material may be more important than the glory of your particular site interface or design. Definitely take a bet on social. Um, yeah, sure, in two or three years' time, we may all scratch our heads and say, remember that Twitter thing? What a lark that was. Blimey, whatever happened to that? But the notion that people will communicate in the digital space in real time around things and to the people they want to and to the wider world won't go away, I would guess. And remember, everybody's got a voice, not just you. Definitely bet on mobile. We didn't do History of the World very well on mobile. I'm not going to read all those facts out to you, but I just bring this one out. The iPhone is only 3.9% of the UK mobile market. So don't obsess about your iPhone app. You, you may well need something that works on iPhone. You need something that works on mobile devices more broadly. And finally, do bet on partnership. Definitely work on the basis of the more people you can work with, the better chance you have of being bigger and more successful in this space. Thank you. We're not just making widgets that go on the bottom of washing machines. Arts organisations make great stuff. That stuff needs to be shared. And one of the key things for us is around also unlocking those permissions. So it's using things like Creative Commons. It's using those things that are not around copywriting and locking things down. This is publicly funded. It's publicly subsidised. So therefore, it has to have a public open access opportunity. And that for me is really key about being a director, about running an arts organisation. We're making stuff for people. We make content. We want to share it. We want to share it as widely as we possibly can. We want to make that go global. I've learned a lot of interesting things. Really, really interested in the sort of BBC partnership model. 
essentially because I've been working with CMA now for two years on establishing some sort of relationship between arts organisations and community media organisations, looking at developing creative content, looking at the ways in which those partnerships can develop, um, what's needed from an arts organisation in terms of broadcast and what's needed from a community media organisation in terms of working directly with artists. Next up we have Dominic Smith who's Digital Projects Manager at Timeside Cinema, going to talk about Tyneside's engagement with uh, digital assets and digital material and his current role and give us some insight into how a resolutely venue-based institution, you know, we're in a darkened room with a you know, sound system, can engage uh, with the potential that digital has to offer. Dom. Okay, so uh, apologies if I seem a bit nervous. I looked at the delegate list before I stood up. So, you know, when you get that sense of impending doom that you're actually preaching to the choir. <laughs> so... Actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about bootstrapping. I think it originates with uh, Baron von Munchausen pulling himself out of the swamp by his own bootstraps. So it's a kind of metaphor for a self-sustaining process that requires very little to start it. One of the things we've been doing, and the on button for the bootstrap process here, has been to take advantage of the cinema program. So we have uh, directors coming and talking here quite a bit about the work. So I was able to stream those talks, for starters, just to get an idea of how the infrastructure would work in this building. The actual technology itself, believe it or not, is surprisingly easy. One of the game changers recently has been the fact that people can listen to this stuff on their mobile devices. So it's taken this experience from a lean-in experience, where you're leaning heavily into the computer, hand on mouse, eyes glued to the screen, getting a bad back, <laughs> to um, being a take anywhere experience where I've been doing tests on the small metro route in the northeast of England to see where we get dips in signals, so to see how long people can listen to streams on their way to the cinema. So there would be a potential to have shows and events happening in the build-up to people arriving here as well to kind of extend that experience. So in terms of practicalities, I'm going I'm to talk money here as to how small organisations could start this process. For a streaming server, you're looking at about £200 a year for kind of not a massive amount of listeners, but enough to get started and to build that capacity and to build that experience. Again, same podcasting is a great way of archiving live events. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just remember the last bit. In 2012, we'll be kind of working more towards video as well. We have done a series of video streams from the cinema, and what we found was the early stream process would be really quite disheartening just to kind of let you know if you do start doing this you put a lot of effort into something and get five listeners which was kind of like devastating news at the time and one of the important factors is to keep doing it to keep going and to keep going regularly because people expect it to be a place to go to at a certain time to find certain things and if you don't provide those things they don't come back so you just have to keep going and going and going that's all from me Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Gillian Nicholl. I work for AN, the artist information company. I'm the editor there, so I commission um, writing and some video content um, across our different website, magazine platforms. It's been interesting. I guess all along I'm trying to extrapolate, you know, extrapolate where my organisation sits within this, and I guess a lot of the things have been quite big, you know, big BBC, big huge productions and things, and it's seeing where where we might fit within that and what is useful to us as a as a smaller organisation. But 
interested in producing really high quality material but that's right for our particular audiences. Um, so I was really interested to hear the lady talk about community radio because that's not something that I thought of but I'm, I'm seeing that there might be a route for my organisation to partner with community radio and deliver some of our things via radio. People underestimate in general how, how hard it is to make good quality video and but mostly about time and it's not uh, you can always do it yourself and it can be very cost free but it is about resources in your uh, and your capacity in your own organization and your your own building so that's the kind of thing you have to work out that's why you have to work out why what you're doing has to be very simple has to be very focused on what your audience wants the event's been great and just a really useful resource and just to get to meet people and discuss that every, all these organisations have the same problems and still trying to work through it and, you know, it's good to know that you're not alone, I guess. And we're very, very lucky to have Mark Beatty here with us. Mark is a senior multimedia video journalism trainer, which is a great job to have, with the BBC Academy, but he started out creating sound effects for radio drama, which I think is a much more fun job to have, actually. Uh, and he's going to talk to us about creating content, working the story you want to tell, how to tell it, and what equipment you might need. So if I can ask Mark to uh, come forward. Thank you. Uh, hello. Yes, as Bill explains, I work here in Newcastle, mostly. I'm based here, although work with usually BBC journalists from all over the world. They trek to Newcastle from time to time, find out... Um, how to do things. Before that, I worked mostly for Look North here, working in regional TV news. So uh, apologies if my thoughts tend to be video-based rather than audio-based. And I know there's a lot of concerns that we think about audio content as well. So it's kind of a, a pre-apology in there. Um, I really want to say one main thing, and that is that despite the fact that this is all technology-driven, it really is not about the camera. The kit doesn't matter. And I think we're starting to realise that actually it's the story that counts. And I think, first of all, you've got to tell yourself what you want to make and who you want to make it for, because if you don't know who your audience are, then you're in uh, trouble. OK, I want to show you a little film first, very short, and not all of it. This is from uh, a news programme in Gaelic, just to confuse the issue. So if you don't understand the words, you won't be alone. Um, it's potentially a great story. It was made for the BBC's Anla programme, which is made out of Inverness for the Gaelic-speaking community across the UK and beyond. And it's a great tale about a farmer who's, they think, the last person ever to do an old farming practice. What they used to do was to take the cows from summer to winter pasture. And the winter pasture was often on small islands because it wasn't quite as cold. And because they didn't have boats big enough, they used to make the cows swim across the sea to the islands, OK? So, um, here it goes. I'm, I'm going to keep the sound down because, as I said, you won't understand it anyway. Anybody here speak Gaelic? No. Are you enjoying it so far? What do you want to see in this film? <laughs> what do you want to see the cows doing? <laughs> what are we seeing? A man and... Oh, look, there's a man talking in a room. The BBC's brilliant at interviewing people talking in rooms. Would you believe it, it actually takes to about 1 minute 38 seconds before we finally, in the distance, see a cow? So I, I, I think what I'm trying to say here is... 
no matter how much you love your story, and no matter how passionate you are about it, you've really got to put yourself in the audience's shoes and ask yourself, what do they want to see about your story? What do they get? Oh! <laughs> Immediately, it's impossible to reach for the remote control, right? Because it raises so many questions. And part of the art about making a film is getting into your audience's heads and making them subconsciously ask themselves questions. And you know what? They won't go away until they've had an answer to that question. And that, what question does that raise? Can cows swim? <laughs> you know? Uh, um, do you have to prod them with sharp sticks to make them go in the water? I don't know. But blimey, you're going to keep watching that. But we might be making different sorts of movies. Um, we've started to think already about how you get your intern with the iPhone and what sorts of things they might do. But a record of an event, a stunt or a show or a, a project that your organisation's putting on might be one form of media that, that you want to make. You might want to be pitching an idea. I mean, remember funding? That was nice, wasn't it? But uh, tr trying, to, trying to put together a funding bid or to convince a potential sponsor or partner that a project that you're trying to make is a worthwhile thing for them to get involved in, that might be the sort of media that you want to make. And, and then you need to start asking a load of questions like, how long is it going to be? And whatever you think of, probably divide it by at least two. And then you need to start thinking about, you know, is this run by a big shot talent presenter? Have you got somebody with a real character who can tell the story? Is it an animation? All these sort of things. So the first thing to do really is to assess how big your project is, how big your audience is likely to be, um, and how much money you can spend on it. My main single tip for anybody who wants to start shooting their own stuff is, bizarrely, don't treat it like a movie camera. Don't move it around. Keep the camera still and let the stuff in front of the frame do the moving for you. You'll find if you do that, yeah, editing is far easier. So get your camera. Work out what's interesting in what you're looking at. Make sure that the audience can see what you think is interesting. Push the button and hold it for 10 seconds. Just keep it as still as you can, and then turn it off. If something interesting happens in that 10 seconds, by the way, carry on a bit longer. That's me. like audiovisual stuff like this, the budgets and you know being able to afford to do things properly or or understanding how we can do things on a very tight budget but do them with a kind of critical edge so um, just working out how to make the most of the money that we've got or partnerships that we've got The really important thing is that I think it's really key for arts organisations to remember how important the live event is and how important it is to get that stuff out live, which is why for us the live streaming and then archiving is absolutely the way forward because what you do is you capture those moments, you share them live, those go onto a Twitter feed, they start to have a buzz, you start to create part of the event. And that for us is about being the signal and not just the noise. It's really good to make contact with other people that are doing work in this way to see how we can work together and I found the conversation about Creative Commons really useful. We've been pioneering trying to work with Creative Commons on all of the content that we produce so that we can actually set a standard basically and say to people Creative Commons is there, use it and this is a way of sharing content but you're not actually giving away your copyright of it, you're just allowing other people to see, to view, to distribute it but it remains attributed to the original source. I'm loving the event. 
our final live session this afternoon is Jez Casey, who's an actor, a playwright, and a literary manager. Uh, I'm not sure which role he's going to be in today. I'm looking for tears as little Nell dies. And he's going to talk to us about beaplaywright.com and about the evolution of the project, moving online from offline, what they've done to create material and how that's engaging with audiences in ways that are about encouraging other people to tell their stories rather than just telling the story themselves. Good afternoon, everybody. I work at Live Theatre, which, if you're not familiar with Newcastle, is a beautiful building down on the quayside. My job as literary manager is to find and nurture creative talent. And we do this by engaging with writers in a variety of different ways. And one of the, the things that I've been doing for the last few years is from 2002, we've been running an introduction to playwriting course with my predecessor, Jeremy Herrin who's now a Deputy Artistic Director of the Royal Court. Jeremy and I ran the course for a number of years. We had probably about 120 people take part, of all abilities, and from those people who took part in the course, we had uh, about nine or ten professional commissions. And so we thought, how could we roll out that course that we do, that we teach at the theatre, how could we roll that out uh, online so that other people could have access to it, and perhaps also think about an income stream, as I'm sure lots of people in the room are aware, funding opportunities are becoming more restricted. So we set about adapting the content of the course to the online course. We kind of rationalised the old content of the previous course into a five-modular structure. But it's not an exact science becoming a playwright. And in fact, what we're after is for people to think individually. So we wanted to create a variety of of voices. So obviously our voices, Jeremy and mine, were as part of the course, but also people might want to hear how other writers go about tackling those issues that I've just mentioned. So what we decided to do is to create some video content of really top playwrights that we really admired and also had something interesting to say, and to begin to analyse how they tackle the issues that we raise in the course. We also created some audio content. We've got a group of people who um, have been involved in some productions to discuss them, and we have those on the website as podcasts. I think, you, I think basically you probably just sit at your desk till your head bleeds, really. That's probably what the key is. And it's all right if you can't do it. I think that's what you have to own, the bits where you can't do it, where you just think, I don't know how to do this. Mm. I can't write any single play I've ever written. There's a point where I can't write it. And then I phone up my agent and tell her I've, I'm not, I can't write plays anymore and I'm going to bed. I'm always going to bed. So we came up with two pricing structures. There was an interactive option. At the end of each module, you have a bridging exercise which you submit to uh, us at the theatre and our literary department will pass on uh, informed uh, opinion about the exercise and then feed it back to you and then you carry on. And the last module, we're asking people at the end to write a whole play. We hope that the knowledge that people have accumulated over all of the modules gives them a toolkit that they can use to write a play at the end of the final module. And they submit, in the interactive version, that play to the department, and we will provide a, a very detailed critique about the quality of the play, and also to offer some advice about where they could place the play if they wanted to have it done professionally. And the solo option, which is cheaper... That doesn't involve the interaction, but you do still do have access to all of the video content and the audio content that's on the site. Okay, that's it. That's beaplaywright.com. Thank you.
Jill Reed, and I'm press officer at the Crafts Council. And I'm Jilly Clarkson, and I'm communications and marketing manager at Towner in Eastbourne. It's the technical thing for me and for us, I think, that really is the big challenge. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's that, and it's just almost where do we start? Yeah. There's so much content out there in the web. It's what are people going to watch? What are people going to come back to? Is it just going to fall flat? And I think in that sense, this session has been really confidence building. We were yeah. just saying that not only in the terms of the technical side of it, but also just, you know, just have a go. It doesn't have to be massively slick and brilliantly produced. You can just sort of get started and, and take it from there. Yeah, I think it's just all the sessions really came down to having a really good idea. Having a good idea and the enthusiasm and, and tapping into something that your organisation might be unique in, in offering that. So I think it was giving you that confidence and that build on that idea. Also, the sessions kind of allow you to be a bit more creative. You're hearing other people's experiences, so obviously kind of they're jotting, thinking, oh, what would I do? How would that suit our audience? So I think it just, time away from your organisation, your office, actually to think creatively is really important. You know, we're actually working with the town, so that's been really interesting to meet Jilly, but kind of like networking and thinking about other people's ideas is really important as well. I would absolutely agree, <laughs> I agree with all of that. Yeah. You know, the, the group session was really good because obviously yeah. the presentations were fantastic, um, but also just having that space in the group session to sort of come up with some ideas, I found that really, really useful. There's a lot that I'm going to take back and it's given me a bit of confidence in some of those ideas and how they relate to us as an organisation. And, you know, just as Jill said, we've, we've never met before today. We've spoken, I think, on the phone and via email. So just again, to meet some other people who are in the same kind of boat and sort of yeah. just share that sense of what we're all doing. It's kind of a new area for a lot of us and we don't really know what we're doing. So actually to hear other people having the same experience or the same challenges is really important. You come here, you meet people, you've got their email addresses, you can just kind of provide, it's like peer support that is probably really useful, I think. Don't forget to share and bookmark our podcasts. Video and audio is available from all our seminars and masterclasses at artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. That's artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. Building digital capacity for the arts. You've been listening to a podcast download from Arts Council England and BBC Academy.